listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is session nine of my Genesis podcast. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. Our subject is Jacob's wrestling with the angel. We're in Genesis chapter 32, and let me set the scene for you here. Jacob has spent 20 years at his father-in-law's house, and he's married four women in that time. You remember? And he's had 13 kids, 12 sons, and one daughter. He was tricked into marrying the wrong sister, so he ended up with Leah and Rachel, and then both of their handmaids. During that time, the Lord greatly blessed him financially. So he started with almost nothing, and he's, 20 years later, got this enormous bunch of flocks and herds and all these kids, and he's prospered. So now, uh, he's starting to realize that his father-in-law does not feel about him the way he did before. His father-in-law has grown very envious of how God has blessed him. And then the Lord speaks to him and tells him, you remember this part of the story last week, and tells him to go back to his old stomping grounds where his his dad's still alive. And his fraternal twin brother Esau that I told you was called Harry, he's there. And uh, that's a little dicey because, you know, when he saw his brother last 20 years ago, he wanted to kill him because he had taken the birthright and the other blessing. But the Lord tells him to go back. And so he's en route. He's broken ties with Laban and he's headed back. And now we're in Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, notice the humble language there, my Lord Esau, that's his brother, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So this is an olive branch. I hope there's no hard feelings. It's been 20 years. I have a whole entourage of people now and... He's speaking respectfully and humbly. He's asking for peace. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Harry, Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Well, there won't even be 400 people here today. That's a lot of people. And imagine if it's not just 400 people, we're talking about men of military age that all seem to be on a mission and they're standing behind their leader, and he's your brother that wanted to kill you 20 years ago, and you know you did him wrong. That's pretty intimidating, especially when you have a lot of vulnerable little kids around and women and flocks and herds that could be taken from you. So it scares him completely to pieces. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. Okay, so he's going to try to take care of this himself. He's thinking, let's hedge our bets. 
I'm going to make it hard for him to get at least all of them. So something will be preserved. So he divides them into two groups and he thinks probably if they're going to attack, they'll focus on one group and at least then I'll have the other group, whichever one it is. I have sent to tell my Lord, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that's left will escape. But then it occurs to him to take this to the Lord. So now he's ready to pray. And that's what I want to focus in on today. How would a person pray in Jacob's day if, first of all, there was no Bible, have never heard the Lord's Prayer before, the 23rd Psalm hasn't been written, there is no Jewish nation, there's just this promise that the line will come through Abraham, and now we're down to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and he's got some kids, there's no Messiah yet, there are no churches, there are no preachers much, except maybe for the occasional prophet, and mostly you're constantly surrounded by people that are engaging in idolatry. In fact, just a few verses before, he has said to his household, put away your household gods. You remember his wife, Rachel, who was pregnant with Benjamin, and she had stolen some of her father's gods and lied about it. We talked about that last week. So this group isn't like modern evangelical Christians, that's not their mindset. You don't expect that Jacob is getting up every morning and having a personal devotion time. He doesn't know this God of Abraham very well. But this 400-man band is coming toward him, and he's pretty scared, and it occurs to him to pray. So then Jacob prayed, and notice all the pieces to this prayer. O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord. That's how he starts. That sounds pretty reverent and respectful, doesn't it, to you? You who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you to prosper. Let me show you that while we're at it. You see there at the top, starting at the end of line two, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. That was a quote. So somehow this man, Jacob, who is progressing in his coming to a relationship with God, he knows to pray the word. He doesn't have a Bible, but the story's been passed down, and it is true that just a time before, which you could look up in Genesis 31, verse 3, the Lord had directly spoken to Jacob, and he's the one that said, it's time for you to leave Laban's household. And so Jacob is bringing that back to God, and he's lifting it up to him, maybe like you would lift up the word to God if you needed wisdom. Maybe you would go to God and you would say, James 1.5 says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it will be given him. God, you said that. So somehow this man in another time and culture and way before the word of God was available knew to say, now God, you said go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. That sounds like humility to me, doesn't it you? I don't deserve this. I'm not coming to you saying, look, you should do my bidding. 
No, he says, oh God, you're great and I'm not. You're the creator and I'm the created. You're the holy one and I'm the one who has sinned and done things wrong. I am unworthy of all the kindness. And then he says, and this sounds to me like um, thankfulness, I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. You know, he was running for his life from his angry twin brother. And his dad had told him, you go over Rebecca's family, you go to your mama's family, and you go there and marry a cousin and make a life. And so he might have had a couple of changes of clothes tied up in a sack on a stick, but that was it. I mean, he had his walking stick, and that was all. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. And so then he goes on and he says, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. That sounds like petition to me, doesn't it, you? He's asking God for something specific, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. So he's telling God exactly what his heart is feeling. He's being honest. I am scared to pieces for these children and their mothers. But you have said, here we go again, praying the word. He has this promise from God. And this promise, you'd have to go back to Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15 to find. You have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which can't be counted. Okay, that was his prayer. Then the strangest thing happens. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, you know, his concubines that he also had children with, and his 11 sons, and that was because Benjamin hadn't been born yet. Rachel was pregnant with Benjamin, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions because he had all of these servants back behind who could get the flocks across. You know, it's a little tough. We take bridges for granted, but this was undeveloped territory. And if you come to a body of water, well, okay, how are you going to get all these people and all these animals across it? So they went to a place that wasn't very wide and hopefully not very deep. And they went through the ordeal, which wouldn't be easy if it wasn't very warm outside, of getting them all across this water. And instead of going before them, he hangs back. So Jacob was left alone, and the weirdest, one of the weirdest sentences in the Bible, a phrase, a part of a sentence, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. What? A man wrestled with him? You mean somebody just comes out of the blue and they start to tangle or they're arguing about something or they're starting to come to blows? I mean, I have pictured that most of the time when men fight, they're punching each other, right? This man, whoever he was, and we're going to have some pretty clear clues shortly, somehow confronts Jacob and he's by himself and Jacob and this man tangle with each other for hours. How is that even possible? How could you have the strength? I mean, you know how much it takes out of your arm if you're going to do an arm wrestling contest. You do that two or three times and you're going, okay, give me, let me rest a little bit. Because if you put all of your effort into it, it starts to be a little wearying, doesn't it? 
So why would you wrestle with a stranger? But this goes on for hours. And remember, it's at the end of this fervent prayer that he has prayed. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, it was as though Jacob had a lot of stamina and like Jacob had this iron will that he was going to prevail and that he was dead set on overcoming in this wrestling match. When he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now that would hurt like everything. Most of the time, it's not the hip joint that gets pulled out of the socket. It's more often the shoulder. But anybody that's ever had that happen on a ski trip or something can tell you it's terribly painful. And if you have to go to the ER and have that bone put back in the socket, oh goodness, you'll need a lot of pain meds before they do it. So his hip is not perfectly in joint now. And the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. They have wrestled so long that the sun's starting to come up. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You would think that with his hip on fire and hours and hours of not only not getting to sleep, but this really hard work of wrestling and every muscle in your body is tensed, that you would be thrilled to death if your opponent says, hey, let's call it off. Let's just forget it. I'm done. But Jacob is a person that has been chosen by God for the position in which he was placed for a reason. And this is an example to us if we can start to see this wrestling as a type of persevering in prayer. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what's your name? Deceiver, he answered. That's not a very flattering name and names matter, don't they? What you tell your child they are is probably largely what they will become. And that's why so many children have terrible problems with self-esteem because they've been told they're nothing and nobody for so long. Well, Jacob was tagged with this name supplanter from the beginning because when he was born, he had his little newborn hand around his fraternal twin brother's ankle, remember? And it was symbolic. But he was called the deceiver or the supplanter. And then the man said, your name will no longer be deceiver. But he struggles with God, Israel. He struggles with God because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Wow. So he names him, in a sense, prayer warrior. Can you imagine that prayer warrior? Jacob says, please tell me your name. So all night long, he's been tangling with this mysterious man and he doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't even really seem to be sure what the struggle is about, but he knows that this man is the key to his blessing and that this is 
a breakthrough, make it or break it moment, and he has to stick with this. And so at the end, he says to this being, to this angel, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? You know, when people are trying to keep from answering a question, they'll answer it with another question. <laughs> why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. Okay, so Jacob, who is so eager for the blessing of God, he's gotten the birthright and he's gotten the blessing that had been intended for Esau by father Isaac, remember? And now here he is struggling with this unnamed angel, this mysterious person that seems to be so important and of divine origin. And then that person blesses him there. So Jacob called the place, the face of God, Peniel, the face of God, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Okay, he is a prophet. He does realize, even though his relationship with God has been progressing, he's coming to understand this was a spiritual confrontation. This wasn't just meet some stranger and kind of get into it with him and you fight a little bit. This was a representative of God. Maybe it was even the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know. But he knew that it was something special. So he named that place the face of God. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, the face of God. And he was limping because of his hip. Don't you know that hurt like everything? Therefore, to this day, the Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now, that is true. It's very important if you're going to eat kosher, even if you're eating beef, you don't eat the tenderloin. Like a rump roast, you would have to be real careful about that because the sciatic nerve runs through that. And unless someone who is specially trained to prepare kosher meat has carefully removed the sciatic nerve, because of this story, they just eat around it. They eat the rest of the meat. So I thought you might like a tiny, brief anatomy lesson here. You can see from the picture the hip socket and the femur has a ball on the end of it that fits into that socket. And you can see that coming down from the lower part of the vertebral column and having several roots from about L4 or 5 to S3 or 2, that back of your pelvis that's called the sacrum that's shaped like a triangle, there are these nerve roots that come down and join and they become your sciatic nerve. And the sciatic nerve runs right behind a muscle called the piriformis that's supposed to help you turn your toes out like a ballerina or move your legs apart. That piriformis muscle, can you see that it's attached to the femur here? And can you see that if this femur got pulled out of its socket, that it would pull on that muscle and that muscle would mash down on the sciatic nerve. And so one way to have terrible sciatic nerve pain running down your leg 
is to have a hip out of socket. And so sure enough, he's limping along, always dealing with this pain as a reminder of this transformational encounter with God. And so from then on, he walks with a cane. And everyone can see that he's been changed. So the rest of the story is that we start Genesis 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau. Okay, he's prayed and he's wrestled all night with God. Oh, there's Esau. I haven't seen him in 20 years. How's he looking? Coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. This beautiful pencil drawing was done by James Tissot, and that shows the confrontation. Humility. And look how it ended up. You've prayed about it, and you've given it to God. You've done what you could. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. You know, if Esau had really been planning to run to meet Jacob and embrace him, do you think he would have gotten together 400 men? Do you think he would have said to this group of men that he was able to lead, hey, I want you all to see me when I go up and hug my brother for the first time in 20 years today. It's real important. I want you to see my family reunion. Or do you think he might have been planning a major confrontation? It sounds to me like he had war on his mind, but the Lord changed it. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. God can do anything. He can give you favor where you don't have favor. And here's another artist's conception of what that moment must have been like when Jacob bowed before him. But what I would like to focus on now as we look at this strange story of a man who somehow, without God's word or modern churches, knew how to get a hold of God in prayer. We see six things that I've already kind of pointed out that that prayer contained. It contained reverence and praying the word and humility and gratitude and petition and perseverance. Let's look at each one of those. You see there it says, Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, reverence who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. He's praying the word. I am unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness, humility. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. Now I have become two camps. That sounds like thankfulness. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. Petition for I'm afraid. But you have said, here he is praying the word again, I will surely make you prosper. Beautiful. So where are other places in the Bible where later when it does actually get written and published, we read that prayer should be reverent? Well, of course, there are many. 
But what about Jesus teaching his disciples to pray? One of the two places that the Lord's prayer is recorded is Luke 11. And he started off that prayer, Father, hallowed be thy name. I've heard people, it just makes me cringe sometimes, that just burst into prayers, dear Lord, I ask you, Ugh. I mean, there's times when you have to call out to him and prayer can be informal. But Lord, I ask you, how about a little recognizing who we're actually talking to? I mean, you wouldn't burst into the president of the United States like that. You wouldn't even burst into a friend like that. You would have some niceties at the front, right? And if we're talking about almighty God, the creator, maybe we ought to reverence him. And then that praying the word, where does it ever say anywhere in scripture that you ought to pray the word? Well, you won't find many places that specifically tell you to pray it. And yet the word is repeatedly extolled the whole Longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, virtually every verse, talks about the beauty and the holiness and the goodness and the wonder of God's word. And he did say to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.12, I am watching over my word to perform it. And didn't Jesus say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, you know his word is his will, Right. He's already said what he wanted to do. He told Jacob, go back to your home country and I'll bless you. Well, that's not possible if you've been mauled and destroyed by a 400-man army. So he's saying, God, you said for me to do this. He's praying the will of God. And so that's why we can be very confident that he was on the right track and that we should do this too. Of course, you can't pray the word if you don't know it. So you have to be reading it. And as God's word is God's will is revealed to you through that word, then you lift it up to him and you say, God, this is what you said you wanted to do. Your word says that we should pray one for another, that we might be healed. So I'm praying to you for Joanne Brace or Claudia Austin or Helen Johnson, you get the idea. Then humility. 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are we really going to get anywhere with God if we think that anything we have or are is from our own might or power? I always appreciated what Royce Peterson used to say when he was our pastor. You know, he's been gone a long time now, but oh, I... So respected that man. And he would say, if God took his hand off you, you couldn't make it to the back door. And I thought, yeah. I mean, I'm just a few breaths away from eternity, right? And so it's by his grace that I live and we had better walk in humility before him. <laughs> and then what about the petition and the thanksgiving? Those two go together. When I thank God for what he's already done, then it Boosts my faith to ask him for other things. Reminds me of Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So we start out our prayers. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for how far you've brought me. Thank you that we have your wonderful word and for your promises. And this is my request, O oh Lord. 
And then comes the perseverance. Oh, that's such a beautiful picture of perseverance. As you see poor old worn out, stressed out Jacob wrestling with this shadowy angelic figure all night long, groaning and straining and trying so hard and not letting go and every muscle tensed. Can you see someone in fervent prayer? I mean, there's the prayers where you're kind of in a hurry and you're going, God bless the world, I need to get out of here. And then there's the prayers where you get alone with him and you shut the door and you say, I'm not coming out until I have prayed through. That's what they used to call it. Remember the story of uh, Elijah after the famine and after the showdown with the 400 prophets of Baal? It hadn't rained in three and a half years. And it was time for God to send the rain, but he went and prayed and he told his servant to go check. You see the servant checking at the back of this picture? He goes and looks while Elijah's praying. He says, no, sky's clear. Seven times he did that. Go check again. Go check again. And the guy keeps coming and saying, sky's clear just like it was five minutes ago. Sky's clear just like it was five minutes ago. But on the seventh time, That servant, as Elijah wrestles with God in prayer, praying his will, God wanted to send an end to this famine. They'd had the showdown. The prophets of Baal were dead. The people had turned to God. Why didn't he just do it after he was first asked? I don't know, but that's not how it works. Sometimes when there's a stronghold, we have to stick with it and pray it through. So on time number seven, The servant comes back and says, well, I did see a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rise up out of the ocean and go up to the sky. Elijah said, hot dog, that's it. You better run to get back to heaven or to get back to town before uh, the heavens rain down. And sure enough, it did. Or what about the story of perseverance that we hear with the Syrophoenician woman? She was a foreigner, and she came to Jesus because her daughter was demon-possessed. And she's asking him, and he's not responding. And the disciples are saying, oh, send her away. We're getting sick of hearing her call after us. And she asks him, and he says, it's not a good idea to give the children's meat to the dogs. Oh, that sounded like an insult. What are you doing, Lord? The poor woman's daughter is demon-possessed. Why are you delaying? But it was a test, and she passed it. She said, oh, but Lord, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. And he said, I haven't seen this great of faith in all of Israel. It's done. You can go home now. She goes home, and her daughter, that had been so tormented by these demonic spirits, was peacefully sleeping on the bed, and the demon was gone. For the whole rest of her life, that little girl never had to worry about that because she persevered, not to even mention the widower and the unjust judge in Luke 18. She keeps coming to him and saying, avenge me of my adversary, and he wouldn't because he was crooked. And he just did that for people that had bribes to offer. Finally, he said, I'd like to get her out of my hair. I think I'll take care of it. And so the point that Jesus is making is if A crooked judge will listen. Don't you think that your heavenly father will grant you the things that you're praying for according to his will? And then God's response was blessing and transformation 
and salvation. You remember the prayer of Jabez? Jabez cried out in 1 Chronicles that God would bless him. God granted the request. The word tells us that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. You know, Jacob was transformed. He was given a new name and a limp to remember the incident. So from then on, he's using a cane and he's going around hurting a little bit and always remembering I've been changed. And then finally, we read this marvelous verse in Galatians where Paul says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule that neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. It's not whether you're a direct biological descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's whether you have been spiritually absorbed into that family through the blood of Christ, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God, the he who struggles with God. You can be the Israel of God, just like Jews can. And finally, salvation. Oh, I love this verse in Hebrews. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Praise the name of the Lord. And that's what he did for Jacob. Jacob said, save me. And suddenly a 400-man army was just standing back there watching while Esau and Jacob are hugging. Beautiful. So the bottom line, this is a model of prayer. Can you persevere in prayer? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It really, really. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 